Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. First of all, I love pareidolia. I do it on a daily basis. I'll look in the clouds. I'll look in the tree barks for faces and patterns of, of other types. Are you the type of person who likes to look up at the sky and find shapes in the clouds? I'm uh, nearsighted, so most of them actually look kind of blobby to me. So no, but I really do like the idea of seeing messages in the sky. You should put your glasses on. You never know what you're <laughs> going to see up there. It does make sense, though, that you picked this story. Tell me about it. So my coworker Joe sent me this story. He thought it would be a good one for the show to take on. Uh, he reported on this group of astronomers from the University of Arizona who were studying the surface of Mars when they discovered a bear smiling at them. You know, of course, it wasn't the type of bear we have here on Earth. Scientists from the university actually think that it was a hill that was kind of broken apart at the center of a crater. But images of it really do look like a bear. It's pretty cute. So is this a Care Bear or a Build-A-Bear or a Pooh Bear? It actually, it has a little Pooh Bear similarity, I'd is say. Okay. All right, we'll just check in. There are lots of possibilities here. Welcome to Something Offbeat, the podcast where we dive into some of the eye-catching headlines of the day. I'm your host, Mike Rogers. We're talking with one of our producers, Lauren Barry. And to learn more about this bear on Mars, I spoke with Nathan Heller. He's with the Department of Psychological and Brain Scientists at Dartmouth University. You just heard him at the top of the show. He's an expert in the phenomenon of pareidolia, which is the experience of hearing or seeing a specific image in a random visual or auditory stimulus. And Lauren, you spoke to someone, too. I reached out to my favorite astrologer, Jessica Lanyadu. She's host of Ghost in the Podcast and author of Astrology for Real Relationships. She helped us learn why people are always looking to the sky for meaning. One of the personal, you know, my personal experiences that got me interested in this is of the auditory type. So I used to, I lived at a Buddhist retreat center in my early 20s for a number of years and I would sit and meditate by the water. There's like a stream. And if I listened to it long enough, I'd start to hear a melody in it. And it wasn't until I went back to college and learned that this is a very common experience. Like something like 20% of people will hear melodies, often kind of classical melodies in uh, ambiguous auditory stimuli. So yeah, I'm a fan of pareidolia. Tell me a little bit about it. Tell me about the history of it. So the word pareidolia, it was introduced by a German psychiatrist, Dr. Kalbum in the 1860s, and he used it to describe what he called partial hallucinations. And by that, he meant hallucination-like experiences that relied on some prior sensory input. And these were experiences that some of his patients with psychosis were having. And then a bit later in the 1900s, researchers started conducting the first pareidolia style experiments. And what they did is they used 
auditory noise, which is like static of an out-of-tuned radio. And they found that people who are more prone to auditory hallucinations were more likely to hear voices or melodies in that static. And this is an example of auditory pareidolia. But more recently, researchers like myself have started to recognize there are tons of non-clinical contexts in which pareidolia is perfectly common that we can all experience pareidolia in. And I think my favorite example is the common childhood activity of looking at the clouds and finding faces or animals in them and making up stories about those. So this is totally healthy, totally normal. Um, I like to think of it as a form of creative play that anyone can engage in. And over the last couple of decades, we found that these types of common pareidolia experiences are actually connected to all types of important human capacities, like religious or spiritual thinking, creative capacity, creative potential, and attentional processing too. Does peer pressure affect this at all? When people, you know, when you're in a group of people and they say, well, can't you see it? Look, there it yeah. is. And you, you totally. go along with them. Yeah. Yeah. Peer pressure can definitely be a factor. So again, if we think about the example of finding faces or animals in the clouds with a friend, you might look in the clouds for a while and finally find something interesting and cool and point it out to your friend and they might not see it at all. And in this case, you'll have to sort of guide their attention. You'll have to nudge them psychologically to see what you see. And this kind of um, psychological nudging is a form of peer pressure. And this type of pareidolia is a little unique because when it involves this type of psychological coaxing, it requires what we call in the business top-down processing, which means we have to bring online mental states like attention and expectation to actively shape our perceptual experience. You mentioned the religious aspect of this. That's what I think of. Somebody, you know, a piece of toast pops up and it, they see the Virgin Mary on it. Or we see this kind of stuff all the time, right? I mean, well, the very sort of like classic religious apparition style of pareidolia, I don't know how common that is, actually. I think it's really interesting. I'd love to have some stats on on how often people have those powerful, like overwhelming religious type visions. But we definitely have common you know, visual experiences that are pareidolic all the time. Like Heller said, pareidolia is actually pretty common. You think about it, long before the bear on Mars, people have talked about the man in the moon. The folks at the Royal Museum in Greenwich, England, they tell us that other people have seen a toad or even a rabbit in the moon. My wife told me about a woman in the moon. She kept saying, look, it looks like a cameo. And it took me a long time, but I did finally see it. And now that's all I can see. In Chicago, we used to have this thing called Our Lady of the Underpass. Uh, it was under the Kennedy Expressway. And you know, it was basically just a salt stain. But people thought it looked like the Virgin Mary. Uh, my mom and I went down to see it once. And there were all these candles. It was actually kind of beautiful. You mentioned the different kinds of pareidolia celestial pareidolia yeah could this be like looking up and seeing a dog you know the, the different constellations and totally. the lion and whatnot yeah 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 so i mean i think that the actual perceptual experience so i'm a perception researcher and so i focus a lot on the the content of the experience I don't think that there's a big difference between celestial pareidolia and terrestrial pareidolia perceptually but celestial pareidolia 
does have, you know, a special influence on humanity. So like you were saying, like the constellations, right? The night sky, it's basically a giant image that all of humanity everywhere on the planet has been looking at for all of humans history, you know, for millennia. And the constellations, they're kind of like a cast of paradolic characters. And we've developed like really powerful relationships with these objects like Orion and the Big Dipper. They've even significantly influenced our history. They shaped the architectural planning of the Egyptian pyramids and led American slaves north to freedom. So yeah, celestial pareidolia is unique because its powerful influence, it kind of transcends space and time. As an astrologer, why do you think people are drawn to the sky and want to find meaning there? It's such a good question. And it's also such a modern question because up until the times of industrialized living, we wouldn't have that question because it would be such an obvious answer. It's the planet we live on and it goes dark every night. And the thing that happens is stars come out and then the moon comes out. And sometimes it's really small. Sometimes it's really big. And on a sunny day, we feel one way and on a rainy day, we feel another. The weather is something that, you know, in modern society, we're just like, oh, it's the weather, but it's literally the thing we depend on for our safety and survival. And astrology is not about, I mean, I guess on a level it's about weather, but it's really about the interconnection between our own lived experience on this planet in our bodies and what happens in the heavens. And that is something that sounds really far out to a lot of people these days, but is honestly like a very kind of common sense thing if you, if you think about it, in my view anyways. Astrology is one of the most well-known systems, I think at least in modern times where people are really connecting this relationship from the cosmos to these human narratives that we have. What made you interested in the field and, and knowing more about this? I was always interested in astrology. So I was born in the 70s, which was the last most recent time when astrology was really popular. So it must have been kind of around when I was little. But ever since I was really little, like under the age of seven, I was pretty fixated on astrology and really wanted to learn more about it. And so I can't say that it was something specific to the heavens per se. More than anything, astrology, which a lot of people don't think of it this way, but astrology is math. And it's the math of who we are as individuals and where we're at as a collective. And I love that sense of order. As a journalist, I don't think of myself as very believy, but I feel like astrology is kind of approachable for even people who feel that way. It's soothing to me anyway. I don't feel like pressured to believe in it. It just brings up interesting things to think about. Agreed. And yeah. this is, you're mentioning something so important, which is I don't believe in astrology. You know, I am an astrologer. I've dedicated, you know, 28 years of practice to astrology. And I don't believe in it because it's not a belief system. Some people see it as a belief system, but for myself, I see it as a tool and it works. And that's why I've returned to it. And, you know, a lot of people who are really actually very interested in astrology are journalists, are engineers, are people who are analyzers. And there's a level of astrology, which is like pop astrology, which is just about horoscopes. And that is, it's like a cotton candy food. It is not like, you know, a salad or something nutritious, but you can get value from it, but it, it's not what astrology is. It's just the most kind of commercialized version of astrology. Well, when you get into real astrology, it becomes 
it, it becomes something really fascinating and I think incredibly helpful. How can people avoid turning to astrology in unhealthy ways or taking what they read and turning it into a self-fulfilling prophecy? So a lot of people turn to astrology, as you just named, when they're anxious. That's a poor use of astrology because unless you're a, like a seasoned astrologer, because what you're doing really is you're going on the internet and you're Googling yourself or your feelings and you're getting, uh, you know, three line to five paragraph long isolated take because unlike other industries, there's no vetting process. So it's up to the individual person online who has anxiety or who has a crush on someone to figure out which is a reliable website, which is a, a trustworthy source. And that's hard to know when you're like, I have a huge crush on this person. Oh my God, what should I do? I'm going to look up their sign. We have to be discerning. And most people aren't necessarily that great at discerning, especially when they're anxious. It gets complicated. All to say astrology is complicated and our use of astrology is complicated think people see faces in the sky, like the man in the moon or the bear on Mars? I personally think it's a really simple answer. You know, when I drive a Jeep, I notice a million Jeeps on the road. And when I don't drive a Jeep, I never notice Jeeps. You start looking around for things you recognize. You start looking around for things that you can make sense of. And so we will often look at a situation, a person, a picture of a planet, and we're scanning for things that we recognize because that's how the human brain works. So for me, it doesn't seem like a hugely spiritual thing. And, you know, I'm not the most romantic person in the world. So maybe to someone else, it is very spiritual, but it seems like, you know, we are looking for something we recognize. We're looking for hills and mountains. We're looking for a house, a person. Oh, wait, that's a face. I recognize a face. And I can't tell my, my brain can't tell me it looks like the face of a human. So it's a bear. The bear, the bear on Mars. Tell me about this. Yeah. So the bear on Mars is, it's kind of different from the pareidolia in the clouds that I was describing before, because face pareidolia, especially specific types of face pareidolia, they're really automatic. They don't require that type of top-down expectation quite as much. And that's because as social primates, we're hardwired for face perception. Faces are crucial for our survival. There's literally no other thing in the world that conveys as much important information for us as faces do. And so evolution has built into us these automatic rapid face detectors. Our brains literally have face templates. So when something in our environment has two dots where eyes might be, and then a third dot where a mouth might be, our brain will automatically see it as face-like. In fact, one of the most impressive neuroscience experiments on pareidolia really drives this point home. It was um, conducted by Dr. Susan Wardle at the NIH and her colleagues. And what they showed was that for pareidolia images like the bear on Mars that match our face template, they the brain rapidly and automatically within 100 milliseconds, a small fraction of a second, categorizes it as a face. And only after the brain has this, it's a face response, will the brain uh, recategorize that object as what it actually is, which could be anything. It could be the front of a car or a light socket or a pile of rocks on Mars. I think you may have answered my next question, which is how and why the brain does this, how the brain is able to do this. I mean, maybe we're, we're looking for faces and things that don't really have them. Yeah, I think that that is definitely true. 
and partially unique to face pareidolia. Like I said, there's auditory pareidolia. There's seeing things that aren't faces. There's being more kind of creative in how we're looking at the clouds or at other kind of random stimuli, random images um, to find more interesting shapes. But yeah, for faces, as like I said, social primates, we are right there instantly going to see a face and something that might be seen as face-like. Is there any practical application to this? Could we use this as a diagnostic tool maybe? Yeah. So I'm actually right now running a large online experiment um, to test whether um, kind of priming pareidolia, people's suggestibility to different types of pareidolia is predictive of hallucinations in the healthy population. So benign hallucinations, non-pathological. But other researchers have shown that pareidolia is proving to be an effective diagnostic tool for visual hallucinations in some patients. So a group in Japan developed what they call the noise pareidolia test, and it's being included now in some standard neurological batteries for psychosis in some Parkinsonian disorders. So some, some Parkinsonian disorders can result in forms of psychosis. But I actually think that pareidolia's clinical value can really go well beyond this type of diagnostic use. I think we can actually use it to investigate the causes of hallucinations in the brain. And I hope that this can inform future treatments. Doesn't it vary, though, the, the things we see and hear or think we see and hear? Doesn't it vary from society to society, religion to religion? Culture kind of narrows our sources of meaning making. It instills idiosyncratic expectations about what is and isn't a worthy source of meaning for that person. So someone with a Catholic uh, upbringing might look at a cloud and see the image of the Virgin Mary, but someone with a Buddhist background might look at the same cloud and see the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin. So these types of religious apparitions, they're really evidence that the way we experience the world is shaped by what we expect will give us meaning, give us a sense of meaning. But what's meaningful for one person might not be meaningful to someone else. There's a cute episode of the uh, cartoon Bob's Burgers. I don't know if you guys know Bob's Burgers. Yep. Uh, oh, yeah. my, my wife pointed this out to me. So they do this whole thing with the potato. She sees it as her her grandfather, but Bob doesn't see it as her grandfather. It's, it's my favorite. There is something really valuable about exploring ideas that are different than your own and exploring different ways of viewing the world. Hi, Mike Rogers. Thanks for listening to Something Offbeat. This episode written and produced by Lauren Berry and Chris Blake, with audio editing by Chris Blake, original music by Myron Kaplan, and editorial support from Cooper Mall. And to keep listening, please subscribe to us on the Odyssey app or Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have your own offbeat story that you think we should cover, we'd love to hear about it. Send it to us at somethingoffbeat at odyssey, that's A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.